the Summer Olympic Games. The pinnacle of track competition are over for another four years, but taking a look back, I really think that there's a lot positive that we can take away from our performances in Rio de Janeiro, both meddling and otherwise. To help us break it down this week, our in-house run pundit Jeff Costin, he'll be joining us in just a second. Also on this week's show, we try something new, Brent Stachel. He sits down with us to chat about some running myths as we put them to the test in track fact or fiction. Don't go anywhere, we have a really great show ahead. You're listening to The Terminal Mile, a Tracky Radio production. The Terminal Mile presents Track Fact, Fact or Fiction with Brand Stachel. He knows stuff about running and science and stuff. All right, Brand. so here's how it is. Before every single race, and yes, I know this is awful, I take a look around the line for three groups of people that I know that I need to beat. The people wearing basketball shorts, the people with fuel belts, and the people with compression socks. That being said about the compression socks, I don't actually know what they do. A lot of people wear them and think that they get, you know, something out of them. However, I want to know, compression socks, track fact, or fiction? Yeah, so it, it's kind of both, actually, to be 100% honest. It depends what you're using them for. So, um, yeah, like you said, you basically see them everywhere. Uh, there's three main theories that the, the literature's kind of looked at right now. So, increase in uh, venous blood return, uh, decrease or uh, increased control of muscle vibration, and then... The one that we don't really care about too much as, as distance runners is an increase in power. So let's start with the easiest one um, for us to kind of to look at because of the science. So the increase in power. So all the science I've read seems to agree that compression stock will increase power. So it's believed to be done through a decrease in the muscle vibration and increase in proprioception or your body's awareness uh, in the area. So this is why you will uh, have seen like in Rio, most of the jumpers wearing them. So they get a little increase in power from their compression gear. Um, however, this doesn't really help us as distance runners. Um, the second being uh, increased uh, venous blood return. So, so far it's agreed that during rest or travel, this recovery modality can be super beneficial for us. Um, as all, but we don't understand why. We know from the research that it will help, but we just don't know what the mechanism is to cause this to help us. Um, but the most important question that we're trying to look at is that uh, if this will increase blood flow to help us during a run. So right now the science is kind of mixed, not 100% clear. There's some studies that argue that there is a performance benefit with compression socks and others that change, or others that say that there's no change in performance at all. So unfortunately we can't answer that one. Um, But the muscle vibration one, this one's kind of a cool one. Um, So looking at muscle vibrations, kind of the reaction, we've seen it in the slow-mo shots. If for anybody who's watched some of the distance races in Rio, and you can see that muscles contract and vibrate and move. Um, and this is because when we hit the ground, we have ground reaction forces coming up, and the hope is that our muscles and tendons and ligaments, they take the forces and not the bones. Uh, but that leads to a vibration in the muscles. Um, so with this in mind, there's kind of two ways that the compression socks are supposed to help us. One, if your calf musculature on that loading due to the position is not in an optimal position, uh, it could lead to loading incorrectly, which could lead to increased soreness, perhaps injury. Uh, and the idea is that the, the compression socks help keep the, the gas rock and the soleus in place. Um, so the scientists also believe that uh, this vibration could be uh, one of the sources of DOMS or like delayed onset muscle soreness, that, you know, that pain after a really hard workout or a race that kind of peaks 48 hours after a hard session. Um, so they think the compression socks could help um, off doms as well but 
In conclusion, to answer your question, uh, do they work? The answer is it depends. Maybe it's placebo, maybe it actually works. The important takeaway is to figure out why you're using them and if it can help you. If you wear them now and they help you, great, keep wearing them. If you wore them and they didn't help you, chances are you shouldn't buy another pair. And, uh, and basketball shorts, what's, what's, the, what's the word on them? I haven't seen any of the science on basketball shorts, but anecdotally I can tell you that people that wear basketball shorts in races do not run as fast as people wearing foot shorts. If you have a running myth that you want checked out, be sure to send us a tweet at the Terminal Mile. Well, now that the haze from the pyros at the uh, closing ceremonies has cleared, we figure it's probably a good time to bring in our in-house run pundit. He's the winner of the Scotia Waterfront Half Marathon from last year, and also the only guy I know to order a stir-fry in a Mexican restaurant. He is Jeff Cosson, and he chatted with me just yesterday. So the track really kicked off with that crazy women's 10,000-meter race. You know, eight women under their national records, uh, including a new American record, four women under the 30-minute mark, which, you know, I don't... I think there's slightly more than that under the 30-minute mark before that, uh, you know, in all of history. But perhaps most amazingly is Almaz Ayana, the winner, uh, dropping the old world record by close to 14 seconds from 29.31 to 29.17, which is about a 1% drop. Uh, there are kind of two camps on this. Uh, the Steve Magnus, ultra cynical, everyone's doping sort of, you know, take on it. And the commentator path, which is, you know, the Olympics are magical. Um, what are your overall thoughts on the race? And did you think that there was that much time to be taken off of, I don't know, what what has been called a very dirty record? I would. I think anyone would be lying if they said they predicted that type of race coming up because that was, you know, one of the races that people will talk about for years on end as being um, kind of an anomaly from what women typically run. But I don't. I don't think that, and I definitely think that world record looked like it was fairly out of reach. It's been there since 1993 when a lot of which is an era which a lot of people see as kind of the peak of doping sophistication ahead uh, as far as being ahead of testing. Um, and this this race is one of a number of things that raise question marks for people over the course of the year. So naturally, I think I'm suspicious. It's healthy to be suspicious, but I don't think we can just immediately equate any sort of remarkable result to somebody being guilty. Maybe, maybe that's me being me seeing the world with rose-colored glasses, but I, I like to think there's room for people to take these big jumps. That's not to say I know one way or the other, but something that we haven't really talked about is women's running compared to men's running as far as um, especially commitment within the developing countries that often produce the best runners in the world is in its relative infancy. So I think there is room for a lot of progression. I don't think anyone saw it coming that quick. I certainly am not able to say, oh, that's definitely a clean race. But I, I am optimistic about the ability for a lot of these times to come down over a period of time. But no, it was a huge leap. And uh, def- yeah, uh, it, it, one should be skeptical. But I just because there's smoke doesn't always mean there's fire. Okay, so with that race, there was, you know, a pretty big field, uh, you know, that was encouraging to see, but there was such a large gap between the winner and then the person who, you know, came in last, and not even last, you know, kind of even the back half of that field, there was, there was such big space, there was, you know, two, three minutes there. 
what what do you think that they should do to do that? I mean, should they run two different sections? You know, maybe a slower section and a faster section. What what would you suggest? It's an interesting thought. I think I I don't think the runners being lapped repeatedly necessarily compromised the quality of the race. I, like obviously, you know how well people did at the front end, and I think. It's tough to say. It would be interesting to hear from people who are in that position, but I, I don't think people in the back of the pack would necessarily want their own section. I think people who were in the back of the pack will be happy to say that they were part of that race and they were that they something that's always going to be remembered. And then just logistically, you open up another can of worms if you're running two sections. Do you, especially in tactical races, is it fair for somebody? to have the chance to win the gold medal from a lower sh- or heat, or are you going to do two heats and then a final, which is pretty taxing, and a 10,000 makes it difficult for anyone to double. So I, I think the status quo is probably a status quo for a reason in this case, but it's an interesting question because it's definitely not ideal having gaps of that size. One of the biggest stories um, you know, about the Olympics was the women's 800. Uh, you know, I really don't think I need to rehash that for uh, for the average listener of this podcast. But what really isn't talked about a whole lot is how Melissa Bishop handled the whole situation, uh, in my opinion, like like a real champion. You know, if you're a competitor and you're in a field like that with people who, uh, let's just say, have a, have a perceived or otherwise unfair advantage, how do you handle it? I mean, on the swimming side, there was the, the American swimming girl who, you know, called out Gatlin and stuff. And, and there's been different things like you know, you don't shake hands. Like, how do, how do you how do you deal with those people in kind of a, like a social way on the on the track? Um, it's a good question, and I think in the case of Melissa Bishop, she definitely handled it the right way, and uh, I think a lot of people appreciated the you know the class and the poise she came out with. I also I I, I really think I know you brought up different situations, but I think dealing with dopers who are you know willingly breaking rules is a little bit apples to oranges versus uh, hypoandrogenism, which is what we're talking about in the women's 800 meters, where what, whatever you think about whether or not she should be able to race or whether or not she should need to be taking hormone blockers or something, I think it, it's a situation without precedent where more clear parameters need to be developed. And I think it, it's a difficult situation, I think, for athletes on both sides, athletes like Militia Bishop who, you know, fall in the traditional testosterone range and people like Castor Semenya who's, I think, handled herself admirably as well with like a humiliating amount of scrutiny on her own medical situation. We still don't know everything about it. So I do think there's definitely a need to address this, understand kind of what type of framework we wanted to define women's athletics under, consult with the athletes themselves, consult with medical professionals as far as what options are available for people like her without being, you know, ex- excessively invasive and try, yeah, try to figure out a clear set of guidelines. But I, I don't think, I don't think people should be attacking the human in the case of Castor Semenya or something like that because She's trying to do her best with the circumstances she was given, and she's exceptionally talented. And I definitely feel for people who think they don't have a fair chance to compete and think that will need to be addressed. But I don't think this can be taken up on like a human take it out against the 
other athlete example. Whereas with doping, I think that's fair enough because people, that that's the chickens coming home to roost. One of my favorite parts of the games uh, was when they when they flashed the camera on Eric Gill says he came around that last corner during the men's marathon, uh, finishing tenth overall. Such a consistently good marathoner. I mean, I watched him at Toronto cross the line last year. You know, you can follow this guy's splits. He runs marathons incredibly smart, and it was really nice to see him get that tenth overall finish. What do you think that the the future holds for uh, Eric and Reed? And uh, did you think that he'd end up doing as well as he did? Well, best case scenario, you get them back on your show and they can tell you what's next because it's hard to say. I I don't know how long he wants to compete for. But I think I I wouldn't have told you like with any sort of certainty that he was going to finish top 10. But based on how consistently he's run over the past few years, the past year especially, and like, yeah, he's had a very good build on the way up. I think it seemed reasonable to assume that he was going to build on what he did in 2012, which was also a really solid result. And he's generally performed pretty well when it mattered. So I, I think I had high expectations, but um, I didn't necessarily see top 10 coming. But from seeing the way he paces himself and all the things you hear, he has the perfect type of temperament for that type of race where a lot of guys are going to go out too hot and come back and you know, it worked out perfectly for him. So in hindsight, it definitely makes sense. But yeah, it jumped out at me at the time and was great to see. Uh, another real favorite part of the of the games, uh, I'm sure it was for a ton of other people too who have followed his career, uh, was watching Nate Brennan, seeing him in that final. You know, it's it's really tough to tell at this point, but what do you think he's going to leave a lasting impact uh, on the sport in Canada and just what will that be? And, and maybe do you have, you know, a favorite Nate story, uh, maybe growing up if, if you followed his, his, uh, his racing? Yeah, I, I think he has a legacy in that he's someone that did the sport from a very young age and was able to stay at a very high level from a young age. And kind of similarly to Kevin Sullivan, they were able to show that you know, you can do something young, but you need to have the right headspace to be able to do it long term. And I think he's had injury problems, but he's always been very diligent about coming back. And it was good to see a pay back for him. I, I used to like hearing for like a favorite moment type thing about the Michigan workout. They had a really, when he was at Michigan, they had a really gnarly group with Alan Webb and Nick Willis, who just won bronze in the 1500. Mm-hmm. And it started off with a 1600 meter on the track, followed by 2K on the road back on the track for 1200 then the road loop again 800 another road loop then a 400 and like you'd hear legends about the splits they would pull off in there so i I tried one of them at queens but haven't (laughs) had the courage to take a stab at it since then but I, i i liked hearing about that workout and how those guys would just attack it it's pretty impressive wow and then of course him making him making the finals is a great story after him obviously being in very good shape in 2012 but falling Oh, for sure, for sure. You know, I think one of the big highlights uh, as well was was Evan Dunphy's actions. Um, you know, he's been a great supporter of the show. I, I've had him on at least once, maybe twice. But uh, watching him help out that French race walker, you know, but midway through that race, get up to speed after uh, after a real mishap, uh, you know, taking the high road on the appeal for bronze. And just what I was really impressed with was just really giving it his all i mean like at the end he had nothing left even in that last kilometer you could have you could tell he was running on empty uh you know the federation has made it clear going into the olympics so that medals are everything 
uh, in your mind and in the mind of other Canadians, which is better, do you think, the moral victory that he had, uh, you know, kind of that inspiring victory uh, or an actual victory on paper? Yeah, I, I don't know if it's necessarily an either or. From what I've seen with the Federation, a lot of it's, and I don't agree with everything it puts out there, but it's a lot of the time about, you know, having the quality of athletes that can compete at the highest levels. And Evan certainly showed that he was able to do this. He didn't get the medal that he wanted. But as you know, medals come and go, but you, you're going to have your reputation stick with you for the rest of your life. So I think that's something that obviously he did what was important to him. And in a way, he may have just wanted to put the incident behind him. Like I think he recognized the contact was probably unintentional. And rather than feeling sorry for himself and dragging things out, he took the high road. So I I definitely think that was the right move for him. And, you know, um, I, I think he's been well recognized for it and people have developed a very strong appreciation for the athlete he is. And, you know, if you're confident in that and you competed to the best of your ability, that's a big enough deal in itself. So these, these Olympics have, uh, you know, cemented Andre de Grasse as a consistent world beater when, when it really matters. Uh, you know, there's uh, Brianne Tyson-Eaton, uh, Druin. These are, these are all stories that capture the hearts and minds uh, of the Olympic-only eyeballs, I guess you could say. Do you think that these athletes have garnered themselves enough attention to actually be followed over the next four years and maybe even grow the sport in Canada? Yeah, that's one of the biggest challenges for people that were happy with the Olympics and want there to be ongoing support for athletics. Uh, it's that, you know, reminding people that these events take place more than every four years. Competition and training is regular. Preparation doesn't stop uh, other than, you know, breaks at the end of the season. But we want to engage people more regularly. I, th I think there are some opportunities for the momentum with these games that they were particularly uh, captivating from a Canadian perspective, at least compared to the past couple of decades. And I I'm not suggesting we live in a world where amateur athletes are ever going to be mauled in the street walking around, but I mm -hmm. think we can make some progress in really linking these high-level successes to you know, the local sporting groups, the local investments, the local competitions, and you know how the two correlate and how you know people could make the jump from being recreational to competing at an elite level because um, I, I think there are interesting stories with the different training groups and the athletes competing and they're interesting beyond every four years but uh, there's definitely a challenge bringing people up to speed with it when you don't have the obvious channel like the Olympics. Well you know that's actually one thing that I've really thought about uh, you know, quite a bit because, you know, I've talked to quite a few race directors and, and uh, they've all said the same things. I mean, like they have a record number of people who are coming out to their events, uh, you know, the fives and the tens and that sort of stuff, uh, as well as the marathons and half marathons. They're posting record numbers every single year. Why isn't that translating, do you, do you think, to people who want to run competitively? It's tough to tell. Running can be a pretty no-frill sport. There's a lot of time working on your own, and you have to like that side of thing. I think we're, like you said, having a lot of growth and participation. I think you're seeing higher numbers at road races, higher numbers purchasing merchandise than ever, but it doesn't always translate to interest at the most 
competitive level. So really like to see more integration between both sides of the spectrum. So I think like Canada Running Series, they've done a lot of work attracting elite athletes to their events and have ramped that up in the few years. And I think like I would really challenge them to try and incorporate that into the marketing of their events so that you know, runners have a sense of who they're lining up against and the significance of that. Because that, that's one of the cool things about r- road racing. But, you know, if I want to play, you know, men's league hockey, I'm not going to be playing against Sidney Crosby. But you can show up to, you know, the Ottawa 10K and race against legitimately world-class runners. You're not going to be tot- You're not going to be within minutes of them, but <laughs> you're on the same start line. And it, I think that's a cool perspective to have. And just kind of trying to sell to people what they're a part of from the high end of the spectrum so that you can get people who should be a captive audience who are interested in running to be more interested in that in it at its highest levels. So a big story at the at these games was uh Swim Canada. Uh bear with me, we're a running podcast, but Swim Canada and their and their big rise to fame uh with really dominating the podium uh well and Canadian dominating, I guess you could say is it possible that we could do that in distance running? Is that is it physically possible that we could go from where we are now to being like a Swim Canada in time for Tokyo? It's hard to say. I definitely think there's room for improvement. I think the resources required to put together an elite swim program are a little different than an elite distance running program so that there's, you know, we have some advantages with swimming that we don't have with running versus the rest of the versus the developing world. But I think, yeah, there, there's ground to be made, but there are, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. But I think, obviously, it was one of the more successful Olympics we've had as far as athletics. And there are a lot of these athletes who are young, so there seems to be a bit of a youth movement, and I, I definitely think there's reason to think that 2016 will be better than 2012. Mo Ahmed, um, love watching that guy run. He he ran really really well. Uh, it was a bit confusing with all those DQs in there, but you know he continues to uh, show that he has the fitness to be up there. I just think at this point. It's it's almost I don't, I don't want to insult him, but maybe racing intelligence being in those in those pockets for you know the next four years would be really really would do really really good things. Do you think that he'll still have that fitness come four years where he could be potentially a a podium threat in Tokyo? Yeah, I, I definitely think there's his, there's no reason to think his fitness is going anywhere uh, I think he's 24 25 years old um, so he certainly should have the prime of his career ahead of him and working with that uh, Nike group in Portland has seemed to do well for him I think he's like even when he qualified in uh, 2012 he was he was running really fast but he didn't necessarily have the speed at the end of the race and you've seen that like he's really developed that over the past few years so there's a lot of reason to be optimistic that it'll continue building on it. I, I think with that group in particular, there have been some issues with sustainability that there have been a number of athletes who have put together a really good couple of years and then run into injury problems. Um, but yeah, I'm optimistic. And I, I think racing intelligence, I, I don't know if it's all that, but I think as he becomes more confident, he not being you know the fastest 
400 meter guy in the group might be more willing to take risks pushing the pace early and I think that type of uh, development will be helpful for him uh, as he moves forward. Your overall favorite moments from uh, from the two weeks that were? Yeah, like I think like everyone else, I was excited by the Penny Alexiak stuff. But on the on the running side, I thought I thought the men's ten thousand was great. I know there there Mofar is always surrounded in controversy a little bit, but I thought it was a super impressive race after falling and, you know, setting a blistering last five K and just conducting himself with so much poise. I thought the marathon was great watching Gillis come in the top 10 and Galen Rupp uh, getting his medal after, you know, after missing out in the 10K, obviously being very disappointed. Um, I, I'm, always, I'm always biased towards the distance events. I thought the men's 1500, it was slower, but it was very exciting. And, you know, it definitely didn't play out the way we thought it would with Kiprop, who was the obvious favorite, and mm-hmm. it kind of showed the risks you run leaving things that late. Um, but yeah, it, it was an exciting week of athletics, and I, yeah, I'm yeah, i happy with how it played out. He's our in-house run pundit. He's Jeff Koss, and he's actually preparing for his first marathon that's coming up this fall at uh, Toronto Waterfront Marathon. Um, you know, just in case anyone was listening a little bit earlier about mixing the mixing the celebrities with the with the plebs <laughs> prime example of that thanks a lot for uh, for taking the time man yeah thanks michael the terminal mile presents track fact or fiction with brand Stachel. he knows stuff about running and science and stuff seems like you uh, really don't have to spend long in the grocery store to see claims of a hundred different things and and foods that are supposed to improve your you know life and and quality of life antioxidants being one of the most recent ones now that's really been extended into the distance running world so tell me antioxidant supplements track fact or fiction okay so it's, it's a tricky topic uh to kind of compress down into terms that are basically understandable and digestible uh pun intended um most commonly ingested antioxidants that we can think of are like vitamin C and vitamin E that you're going to be getting from your, your supplements mostly or what you're looking at. Um, they, are, they do come in fruit and vegetables, um, but there's also lots of good benefits with fruits and vegetables. So we'll kind of leave that side out. But looking at uh, supplements, um, just a little background on the physiology behind it. Like when we're training and, you know, especially with cross country coming up, we're, we're all trying to build our base and, and adapt to the training that when we're adapting, we're adapting to a stressor. So the stressor being an increased training load. Um, and this isn't just how we feel or, you know, our VO2 max or uh, just being able to run longer and further and faster, but it works all the way down to the cellular level. So running creates a cellular byproduct um, with oxidative stress and can be sometimes known as free radicals, which sounds super scary. Um, and at one point, we were led to believe early in the research that these free radicals could be causing things as simple as like DOMS, our soreness, or all the way to complex diseases such as cancer. Uh, but more recently, the research that's been published shows that perhaps these free radicals got a bad rap for no reason. Uh, perhaps, and more likely, that they actually play a very important and positive role in how we adapt to our training stimulus. Um, so when looking at antioxidants that are going to counter these free radicals, it can actually block or blunt the adaptation to our training stimuli, which is obviously not what we want. So if you look at it, this is an example of, uh, it's not an exact example, but let's say you're doing 70 minutes 
and you take these antioxidants and you potentially lose 10 meters of that 70-minute run, you're doing this every day, that, that little decrease, it's probably less than 10 meters, it's pretty hypothetical, uh, but that decrease every run over time when you step up against the line on somebody else, with everything else equal, that person might be better off than you are. But uh, one important point that we should take away from these antioxidant supplements, um, looking at uh, some research and kind of a mini meta-analysis that uh, Dr. Trent Stallingworth at CSI Pacific has had, is that he recommends to use vitamin C if you feel a cold coming on and throughout the cold, uh, because it can reduce the symptoms and the duration of cold, which obviously for us as runners uh, is super important because uh, we like to miss as minimal days as possible and nobody wants to go for a run where you got snot dripping out of your nose. Um, but on the flip side, vitamin C and E during heavy training blocks should not be consumed post-workout as it actually may blunt our process in which we're trying to retrieve by training. So what you're saying is blueberries on some days, but not every day. <laughs> yeah, try to try to limit them immediately after run, but make sure you're getting your fruits and vegetables in. It's just like your parents always said, make sure you eat your fruits and vegetables. If you have a running myth that you want checked out, be sure to send us a tweet at the Terminal Mile. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Terminal Mile. Big thanks to my guests this week, Brant and Jeff, for their time, as well as to Tracky for their ongoing support, and to you for listening. Be sure, if you want to find us online, you can find us on Twitter, at The Terminal Mile. You can also find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Tracky.ca, and TuneIn. Thanks again for listening. This has been The Terminal Mile, a Tracky Radio production. Music